Hello, and welcome to Aerial Evolution. I'm Rowan. And I'm Jane. With us today is Lindsay Butcher, founder and artistic director of Gravity and Levity, as well as the European Aerial Dance Festival. In this episode, we discuss how Lindsay began her aerial career in the 80s and how dance influenced her artistic choices, the formation of her company, the Paralympics and inclusivity in the aerial community, and really the list just goes on and on. If you like what you hear and want to join in on the discussion, find us on Instagram or Facebook at Aerial Evolution Pod. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want more info on what was discussed, make sure to check out the links in the show notes. All right, let's get started. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Lindsay. Hi, Rowan. Hi, Jane. So the first question that we wanted to have you talk about is how you got into circus and aerial in the first place and where you did your initial training. Okay. (laughs) I trained at London Contemporary Dance School, um, the place in London, and I did a four-year training there. As soon as I left the place, I joined a company called Extemporary Dance Theatre, who were a contemporary dance company. I think in my second, I don't actually remember the dates. This was a long time ago. We're talking back in the 80s now. I think maybe in my second year of the company, the artistic director asked one of the performers to learn some aerial, to learn a Spanish web to illustrate something about the solar system in a piece that we were performing at the time. And I was introduced to this woman called Sue Broadway, uh, who was artistic director of a company called Rara Zoo, who were a new circus company in the UK based in London. And Sue started teaching me Spanish web. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And so whenever I could, because they were touring a lot, whenever they were back home, I would go and train with them and just hang out with them. Sorry, excuse the pun. I would actually hang out with them. (laughs) And then a few years later, I think 88, 89, the company asked Sue back to create a full length aerial ballet called Suddenly Out the Blue. So we were contemporary dancers. We had no aerial training per se, but we did things like uh, static cloud swing. We had a big aerial net that was suspended across the stage. We worked on slings. We called them stirrups. Yeah, and it was a 30 minute long aerial ballet. I loved it so much. I left the dance company and joined the circus company. I did that running away and joining the circus thing and stayed with them for another four years, five years. And all my training, I wasn't an acrobat. I wasn't a juggler. I wasn't an aerialist. All of the training happened with them. There was no circus training available back in the 80s in the UK. So Sue Broadway was my first aerial teacher and I owe her everything, actually. So yeah, worked with them for a few years, just purely on circus and touring and had a great time, but really missed dancing. And then I kind of came back to dancing, doing a bit of freelancing And they went, oh, I'm really missing the aerial. Um, Yeah, went backwards and forwards between dance and aerial. I think in something like, gosh, 96, I started working with a company called Momentary Fusion, who actually they were the first company that I can think of who called themselves Aerial Dance Theatre in the UK. And it was led by two women, Isabel Rockamore and Sophie Griffiths. Yeah, and that was kind of the first time I'd heard that expression of aerial dance. And it really made sense to me uh, because it was kind of this choreographic aesthetic, this dance aesthetic applied to those aerial suspension techniques that we were experimenting with in the studio and then in performance. Anyway, carried on going backwards and forwards between working with dance companies, doing more kind of aerial training, getting my aerial skills up. 
And then eventually in 2003, I'm quite a slow learner. It took me that long to go, do you know what? I'm going to form my own company to pursue the stuff that I really want to explore. And so Gravity and Levity, which is my company, was born in 2003. We're a project-led company, so it's a full-time job for me. But actually, the company really only works when we have funding. But my kind of a goal for myself in creating Gravity and Levity was to have dance choreographers that I had a history of working with, whose work I really admired, of inviting them in to choreograph for myself and other performers that I brought in. So my own aerial choreography tends to happen outside of the company as an independent practitioner. Gravity and Levity is purely my selfish need to be fed by other choreographers and pushed to discover new stuff for myself. I love that. One thing as you were talking that I was curious about what elements you find that you gravitate towards in more traditional dance and then which ones you gravitate towards in aerial. Because you mentioned sort of going back and forth and I was curious about what pulled in each direction? <laughs> so it's a good question. I'm not sure how successfully I'm going to answer this. I think because I had a dance training and I was grounded in my contemporary dance training and I had a confidence <laughs> in my dance training. Like it was something, yeah, I had a training. I never trained in aerial. So, you know, I've always felt like a bit of an imposter as an aerialist. But that doesn't mean that I didn't love, you know, even as a kid, I climbed. I was one of those kids that was always up in the trees and my dad would put ropes up and stuff for me. So I've always loved that element of being aerial and I used to skydive and, you know, there's something about that exhilaration, but also just that I started to discover the more competent I became in aerial, that I could, I could push the dance further through aerial but that took me quite a long time I think initially with the aerial techniques I was learning you know whenever it came to kind of the classical um, techniques trapeze and fabric I always had and I think it's my own personal chip on my shoulder that uh, I had to assume these kind of positions this was the way it was supposed to look and so there was a kind of constraining for me at the beginning when I came to aerial and the only place that I didn't feel that initially was doing harness work there I felt like I could really utilize my dance training my dance aesthetic to the full uh, whereas I think it was purely my own thing because I was watching other people on dance trapeze or static trapeze or lira or fabric and I was watching them dance you know they were, they were absolutely doing aerial dance. But for me, I felt like I, yeah, I was constrained at that time. Maybe just because I didn't have the knowledge or I didn't have the confidence. I'm not sure I've answered that question at all, but no, nah. you, you have. And I, I was just going to say thank you so much for sharing that because uh, your answer is actually something I found I could deeply relate to and feeling a restriction and being able to observe that in yourself. I mean, something I would add to that and, and I... I mean, particularly with vertical dance, which is where a lot of my work is based now, there is also, I think, once you get to a certain level or, you know, technical ability of whatever that is, there's something about that, that kind of freedom and restraint, those parameters that the equipment gives you that is actually incredibly liberating. Eventually, I never felt that I had, yeah, that I, I was just grounded enough in those other techniques that they were well enough developed for me or that I was able to push those boundaries for myself. So I was curious, back in the 
beginning when you were mentioning all the different apparatus that you were doing with Sue Broadway, did those apparatus already exist or were they being created? So yeah, when I worked with Rara Zoo, we mostly used traditional apparatus. We did static trapeze, we did triple trapeze. Yeah, I think it was Sue's idea to rig a net. I can't be honest, I can't, in fact, it must have been Sue's idea because none of us would have had a clue. And to rig the stirrups in the way that she did and to suggest the cloud swing and to use it static. So yeah, those things, obviously the trapeze existed for a very long time. The other things I think were things that Sue was curious about. And I think she's always played with inventing apparatus as well as using kind of classical apparatus. That's been a really interesting thing is what's known and not known about some of the origins of the different apparatus. And then we're not quite sure where they came from. And it's hard to find that information. Well, and I think it's hard to find that information because it could be happening at the same time all over the world. So, you know, I've actually just been dipping into Nancy and Jane's book again uh, recently. And also another colleague of mine, Vanda Moretti uh, from Il Pasto Company, who's written Roots of Vertical Dance. And yeah, it's interesting just to see kind of the stuff that has been plotted, that things are happening at the same time all over the world before we had this kind of technology, you know, so... (laughs) You know, you just wouldn't know. It's not like something would come up on YouTube and you go, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that. They were just happening. And, you know, and historically, if you look back, flying's been used in ballet for centuries, you know, in Giselle, the willies were flying. And and then kind of thinking back to Nancy's podcast and, you know, and she was talking about postmodern dance, something she said made me look back at Alvin Nikolai's work. And he choreographed a piece, I'm trying to remember what it's called, Sorcerer something like that back in 1960 and it's aerial dance you know and it's using harness and all of those things that we go oh yeah that's new it's not (laughs) and I think the same with invented apparatus you know it's been happening for years and years and years and then suddenly it gets called something you know like I remember walking into a circus space now the National Centre for Circus Arts because I didn't train there but occasionally I would go in and rehearse there and someone saying to me oh I do stirrups and I was going oh what stirrups and they were saying oh this thing that we saw this dance company do and it had suddenly become this piece of apparatus you know (laughs) they were just like it's two slings it's two slings that are rigged off a single point oh it's called stirrups okay but I love that and I love that uh, you know these discoveries are happening simultaneously all over the world so I think I think you've got a really difficult job on your hands trying to pin down where this stuff originated because, you know, there's a lot of great stuff, thanks to Nancy and Jane, you know, that's documented from North America. But, you know, what was happening in Australia? I remember Sue Broadway talking to me about things that she would have described as aerial dance or seeing invented apparatus when she was just starting out in Australia. So, yeah. There's so much we don't know. Good luck with all of that. <laughs> I, I, I think one of the things that I've thought recently is it may take us many, many beautiful years where we just get to have tons of engaging conversations with lots of different people and try and figure it out. I'm like, this is great. Yeah. And it's always interesting when people claim ownership of a particular piece of apparatus. Or move. Yeah. Or move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you go, well, yeah, great. It's new to you. And that's fantastic. You know, you make that new discovery and it's new to you and it's original to you. And that is just brilliant. But you can't guarantee that that hasn't already been found by somebody else somewhere else at some point in history. But the beauty is that you've discovered it for the first time. And that's wonderful. 
You've definitely talked about this a little bit already, particularly talking about Sue. But if there's anything that has influenced you personally as an artist that maybe you haven't had a chance to mention yet. Before we started this, I was thinking so much about how's the saying go that we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. You know, and if I think about my first aerial teacher, Sue Broadway, and then all the people that I've come into contact with since, you know, and going to the Aerial Dance Festival in America and how liberating that was. At that point, I'm really not blowing my own trumpet at all here. At that point in the UK, there weren't very many people doing circus because there wasn't a circus training. So to a certain extent, I was kind of a big fish in a little pond. So, you know, to then come to the Aerial Dance Festival in America and just see that, wow, there's this whole community of people that I didn't know existed. And uh, and it's humbling. And yeah, so that was a great thing for me. And then, God, there's so many. It's really difficult to pin them down. But I think a contemporary dance choreographer I have great respect for here in the UK called Siobhan Davis. I remember talking to her about... You know, me being frustrated that nobody was creating the kind of aerial dance crossover that I kind of, I just had this inkling that there was something really rich there and that it wasn't happening. And she was just wonderful in saying, well, then start your own company and I will support you in that. I will do, and you know, I'll write letters to Arts Council. I'll do whatever it is I need to do to help you do that. And she doesn't remember that conversation at all, but you know... (laughs) Yeah. And actually, the artistic director of the first contemporary dance company that I worked for, who was the one who said, would you like to go and learn some aerial work? You know, if I hadn't been in that company at that time, and been the one that she'd gone, I think you'd really like this. (laughs) So yeah, there've been so many influences. And then and I'm continually inspired and influenced by people that I get to teach by my peers. Yeah, yeah, there's inspiration everywhere. Agreed. And that's fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Nancy's festival and how much that influenced you. Can you talk about how then you decided to develop your own festival? Yeah, so I I was trying to remember when I first went to Nancy's festival. I've got a feeling it was around 2003, but it might have been before that. I've been three times. And the first time just kind of blew my mind. I took so many classes. I met so many fantastic artists in that first year. I think that was the first time I met Serenity and Elsie and Jane Bernasconi, Carmela Weber. There was just this real variety. It was so rich in terms of the skills that you could do. Like I think Carmela's class, we did bouldering, basically, choreographic bouldering. And it was so it just blew my mind. So yeah, I wanted to go back and I, maybe it was two or three years later, I went back and that was the first time I met Fred, Fred Deb. I think Chantal had met Fred the year before and we all knew each other from the festival and Chantal and I had known each other for quite a long time. And we had this sudden, hey, wouldn't it be great if we created something like this for Europe? You know, and very much in the spirit of Nancy's wanting to bring a community together. It was absolutely not about a competing festival. (laughs) It it was about, we need something like this for Europe. And so we came up with this idea that we would run these three festivals concurrently. And Chantal's would be first in Ireland and then Fred's in France and then mine in the UK. And people could travel around the festival. Yeah. And that whenever our kind of our opening speeches for all of us, I've taught to all three of them for quite a few years. You know, we all kind of pay homage to Nancy 
as being the instigator of our festivals and that we saw what she had and we wanted it for Europe. And we send people over to Nancy's festival. <laughs> and I think also what's really lovely about the three festivals, I'm not sure Chantal and Fred would agree with me, but um, they each have their own personality. They're very different festivals. And, they're, and I would say they're all, almost reflective of our three different personalities. But yeah, I love working at all of them. They just sound so amazing. Just observing the growth of the aerial community mm -hmm. um, and aerial dance in particular and wondering if you had any opinions on why it's gotten more popular or expanded over the years. My short answer to that is no, except that it's such a great thing to do. Why wouldn't you want to do it? And that it is a very warm community in the same way that I think most of the, I'm not an actress, can you tell? Um, so I don't know theatre, but I would say anything that's to do with our physicality, that's to do with movement, that's to do with confronting fears, trust, you know, all of those great <laughs> skills that we develop as aerialists, as dancers, uh, whether that's as a soloist or whether that's partnering with somebody else, you have to develop all of those skills. And I think those skills by themselves just lend themselves to people having empathy, people having generosity, to people wanting to help each other get along. You know, and that's not that you don't have your own ambition uh, and that you don't have your own goals, but just that it's it's about more than you. I actually couldn't agree more. <laughs> that, uh, and my first background was in theater before I sort of transitioned into different areas of media and then finally aerial. And I would say that actually the only other place I've experienced something like the aerial community is the theater community mm. in terms of the, you know, the cooperation, the collaboration, and then that feeling of my part is dependent on your part. We, we have to be in balanced sort of communion here or it doesn't actually become a thing. Yeah. And I think it goes across the whole industry as well, you know, in terms of if we're talking about aerial theatre or dance or aerial dance theatre or whatever you want to call it, you know, we're talking about the across the whole production. So, you know, the trust that you have in your riggers, the trust that you have in your whole team. I'm just thinking something that I think we could do much better you know, because I'm saying it's community and it's uh, it's all lovely and it's so friendly and so welcoming and all the rest. Of it. Something we could do much, much better, though, is we need to be way more inclusive. You know, and I think Nancy said this the other day that it, it's white dominated and non-disabled dominated. And we've absolutely got to blow that apart. It's just not good enough. The aerial arts will be so much richer for it, you know, bringing in different bodies, different voices. Absolutely. One thing I'm curious about, I have not done the research, start with that, but I also haven't heard about Ariel in too many other countries other than the US and Europe going back. There's a rich tradition of circus in Australia, for sure. I mean, I know of kind of the new circus companies that came out of Australia and the circus training that's available in Australia, but also, you know, in South America, if we think about the aerial companies that came out of South America, and I'm not going to be able to name very many now that I'm on the spot, but, you know, I'm going Brenda Angel, De La Guada, who else? Another Argentinian company, Brazilian company. Yeah, I mean, Brazil has a really rich history of circus. For sure. So it is there. I think we're just not managing to tap into those resources yet. So we have more research to do because 
there's definitely a history there and there's definitely some wonderful work you know you look at the stuff that Brenda's been doing since oh I'm trying to remember how long Brenda's been going for 1980s something maybe and De La Guarda maybe early 90s yeah just trying to remember so really uh, about the same time as everything else it all came up about the same I think there was probably a big worldwide <laughs> explosion that happened around that time you know, and in terms of the vertical dance world, that's also true. There were so many vertical dance companies coming out in the, or people kind of venturing into vertical dance, kind of from the late 80s, early 90s. You trace that all back to postmodern dance. You trace that all back to Trisha Brown, men walking down the side of the building, her equipment pieces. Yeah, that's definitely where the foundations of all of that are. But yeah, I think, I think there were those pioneers way back. Nancy talks about Stephanie Evanitsky and obviously Terry Sengra. And there must be other people all over the globe who were doing something at the same time. I mean, definitely that that San Francisco Bay Area was really rich and New York at that time, uh, the Hudson Church. What's really interesting, and I'm just sort of thinking about this and now in the context of our conversation with you, is while something like YouTube or the internet is fairly modern and recent. The idea of artists traveling for work has been happening for decades upon decades upon decade. And then influencing a little group of artists there, and then they start doing something and then they move on to another contract, you know, so that's, that's been happening for quite a long time. And it's just interesting to think about how that's then sped up as we've got more technology, but in terms of like the seeding of it, and then sort of seeing these little pockets all popping up in similar time frames. It's interesting to just think about how that movement of a few individuals mm. can happen and then we start noticing it later. Well, and I think there is that trickle-down effect. You never know kind of a conversation you have with somebody or a class that you taught, you know, 10 years back, what effect that's going to have on somebody. You know, and likewise the same for me, something that somebody taught me years and years ago will suddenly develop a life of its own because it's time for it to be born. <laughs> it's the right time. Yeah, there's definitely that trickle-down effect. And then, you know, all of this technology just explodes that, makes that so much faster. Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes I'm not so sure. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thinking about, you know, that effect that we can have on each other, do you have a a favorite or a, like a treasured act or show that you've created? Ah! <laughs> Gosh, it's really, it's really hard because there've been so many different contexts. Okay, so the beginning of the company, way back in 2003, we won a thing called the Jerwood Circus Award. And we created a vertical dance duet with a choreographer who I've danced with for years, a woman called Finn Walker. Myself and Lee Clayden, my dance partner, we created this vertical dance duet. And Lee and I have always said it was the hardest piece of choreography we've ever done, aerially or on the floor. It's 22 minutes of full on. It's a hard piece to do. And when was it? 2018 was our 15th 
anniversary. And so I decided, hey, what we should do is we should bring back the same cast, same creative team, 15 years on. So the choreographer, the composer, the lighting designer, myself and Lee. So, you know, we've got 75 years of collective history of continuing to make work. Let's bring everyone back into the studio and let's revisit this piece. So it's not completely, let's start from scratch, but let's just reimagine this piece. And oh my God, it's hard. <laughs> but it's so much better. It's so much more articulate. What was really fascinating about that whole process was going back to material that we'd made 15 years ago and realizing how much of that was so strong in the body and how much that foundation of material has influenced my work over the last 15 years but also coming back to that material and going oh why did I go that way around to get to there it's so much more efficient if I take this pathway so just that embodied learning it was such a fantastic example of our our embodied knowledge those years of experience you know and we were really worried we were going you know like 15 years on my god it was hard when I was 40 something so at this age now what's that going to be like and it's great and my body loves it and for me that's such a positive you know it's also about taking work out to audiences that doesn't necessarily just talk about this young beautiful aesthetic it's bodies at any age that audiences can relate to it also speaks of a you know longevity of career for younger artists that you can still be doing stuff you know, you can still be doing stuff to a high standard. You can still be pushing yourself and still learning and still be hungry for knowledge. You know, it's not over. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's so inspiring and and makes a lot of sense that revisiting a work, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, of course, it's going to be different and stronger because you have all that knowledge to bring to it. You do. I mean, there is also the worry that, you know, oh, my God, what if I'm past it? What if I should have retired five years ago and nobody's dead to tell me? <laughs> Seems like that's 100% not the case. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we change what we do according to, you know, I was, I was thinking also today that I don't tend to do fabric or I never really did trapeze. Let's be honest about this. But, you know, I don't tend to do fabric or any of those other aerial skills that I used to do and that I used to teach. And that that hasn't been a conscious decision. That wasn't me going, OK, no, my body just doesn't want to do that anymore. It's just been you kind of just follow what you're interested in and what really rattles your cage, your creative cage at that particular time. Yeah. And so it has just been that I've just followed my instincts to explore these other things that as it happens have maybe let my body off the hook a little bit have maybe been a bit more respectful to my body well and I think that's something that I really appreciate in some of the difference between traditional circus and then aerial dance as sort of different approaches and aspects to similar apparatus or what have you is the emphasis in traditional circus being so much on the the spectacle and the trick as opposed to aerial dance, which is where I find myself much more comfortable, is more rooted in emotion or rooted in the storytelling. And so it just provides a different opportunity for expression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the technical artistry, the skill that a lot of artists have right now is extraordinary. It's jaw-dropping. You know, if I think back to kind of historically in circus, 
the first triple, the first quadruple. People have been pushing, have been pushing, pushing, pushing. And a lot of them have still been working when they're older. So, you know, either they just have those bodies that had aptitude for the thing that they chose to do, either that or that they just kept training and they kept pushing through the pain. And I'm not, I don't know. I, I mean, I do, you know, I look at the younger artists and the stuff that they're doing that I just think is phenomenal I'm so much in admiration and there's a little part of me that goes oh what about your body when you get a little bit older but you know I can't do that I made the decisions that I made you know and I got quite interested in kind of coming out of the independent dance scene in London where there was a lot of focus on healthier dance practice you know and there was a lot of advocacy and championing for a healthier approach to work, you know, and choreographers were pulled up in this country for their dancers getting the same injuries over and over again. It's to do with your choreographic practice. And so there was a lot of awareness here. And I think when I went into my aerial work, I really took those considerations. But, you know, that's that's my personal baggage. That's my personal interest. And I couldn't knock anyone for wanting to achieve that extraordinary trick if it does some damage to their body, but it gives them the satisfaction at the time. And it may not damage their body, you know, they they may have the right body and they may be, you know, the athleticism of the young circus artists and the young dance artists right now is just unbelievable. I take my hat off or whatever the expression is. Extraordinary. Since you brought up safety and protecting the body, I'm curious, I have been significantly injured a couple of times, just had shoulder surgery. I'm curious, in the US, we have very rigorous safety protocols. What is it like in the UK? And because when we talked to Fred in France, she said that it's kind of, you know, yeah, we're concerned, but like, just be safe. Where does the UK fall? I think probably somewhere between France and the US. I think we're probably not as stringent as the US, but there's definitely um, rulings, protocols here. They're pretty strict. What's great is that at the moment, they haven't managed to clamp down to the extent whereby it stops you from doing things. Like if you have a good rigor working with you, you can usually, by showing that you've really considered all the risks, you can usually navigate your way around to being able to explore what you want to do. But yeah, it quite often takes a lot of creative risk assessments and a really creative rigor to be able to work around all of that stuff. But yeah, that absolutely has to be in place, you know, and if I think about when I first started doing aerial back in the 80s, some of the things we did back then, oh my God, you know, I'm really not proud that we did them, but we just didn't know, you know, we were making it up. And so I'm really grateful that that whole side of the industry has grown alongside the creative and artistic development. You know, the two have to go hand in hand. The two have to feed each other. You know, a good creative rigor makes your production, makes your aerial act. I was just, as you were saying, your comment on the 80s made me flash to playgrounds in the 80s and 90s. And what a like, <laughs> just wow, if they had them exactly as they were today. We're still here. Everything. We're still here, you know? We didn't die. <laughs> no. You need to learn, be safe, and not rely on other people to keep you safe to a degree. So I think France has some of the right idea, you know, learn to trust yourself, but some protocols are good. Yeah, some protocols are good. And actually, you talking about your shoulder injury, Ron, made me think about, I think the second aerial dance festival that I went to was when I met 
No, actually, it was the first one I met, Elsie and Serenity. And I attended their injury. They didn't call it injury prevention. It was a much better title than that. But basically, it was an injury prevention classic. So it was about conditioning and it was about body awareness. And I remember being completely fascinated because that wasn't being taught in the UK at that time. I think it really is now in the circus schools uh, and a lot of the independent studios are really responsible in terms of, you know, looking after their students. But at the time, it really wasn't being taught in the UK. So you learned through injury was the way that you learned and through going to your physio. Yeah. And figuring stuff out together. And I think the independent dance sector that I came from had done so much work in terms of healthier dance practice, that I really felt that the aerial arts were really missing something. So I went and studied with Elsie and Serenity. I went over to NECA and spent a few weeks with them, just kind of picking their brains about their knowledge, because they really were the first people that I know of. But, you know, then again, theirs came through injury. Theirs came through getting injured, both of them getting injured, working for Cirque and having shoulder injuries and spending a lot of time hanging out with physios and being curious. And that's how we, you know, and that's how we push it forward. The being curious is the really important bit, I think, <laughs> in all of this, in all of this health and safety, you know, healthier aerial practice, the body awareness. It's all about your curiosity about the whole thing, not just about the next trick. It's about the whole, yeah, the whole package. I think being curious is how not just with the body and health and safety, but with learning new tricks and doing aerial. I mean, that's, I think, all of Ariel is about being curious, right? I mean, that's how you find a new apparatus or a new move or everything, really. All of life's about being curious, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, something that I was thinking, and it was a quote I came across the other day. I was trying to explain to someone why go into theatres and be interested in, in not just the black box space, as a dancer, that was what we did. We went in and you performed in the black box stage and a few dance companies were kind of pushing that envelope a little bit, opening it up. But there was a quote by Trisha Brown. It's attributed to Trisha Brown. I haven't actually found the original quote, but um, she says, I always feel sorry for the parts of the stage that aren't being used. I have in the past felt sorry for the ceilings and the walls. It's perfectly good space. Why doesn't anybody use it? And I just think that's such a fabulous, yeah, you know, it really illustrates kind of that multidimensionality that we get to explore as aerialists and as aerial dancers. We don't just have to stay on this one plane. We have all of this with the right creative rigors and the right curiosity. <laughs> we have all of this available to us, you know, it's like we're planting flags in the space that no one else has been in. You know, you're making your own little spatial explorations all the time. I love that so much. Absolutely love that. I saw your post about the Paralympics. Is there something that's coming up or is that something that you've done in the past? So it's stuff that we've done in the past, along with Tina and a lot of other fantastic aerial coaches. I was one of the core aerial trainers for the Paralympics. And that was an extraordinary experience for us and for the participants. And there was all this talk about Oh, gosh, this is all going to sound very negative. There was all this talk about legacy. It was so exciting at the time. All this talk about legacy, uh, you know, about equipment being specially designed, you know, and those things that we should be bearing in mind as uh, teachers, as human beings, you know, that 
someone of small stature might need a smaller gauge trapeze, you know, <laughs> that they can actually get their hands around or thinner fabrics that they can, they can actually get their hands around, you know, and those things, they sound really obvious, but when you're in a panic trying to be welcoming, you might not have the right kit available to you and it might not be great the first time you try to do it. <laughs> But yes, so I was talking about this, the, all these talks about legacy and then the Paralympics ended and all of those people who'd done all of that training, like an eight week boot camp, and then three months of training, the bottom just fell out of their world. Suddenly there was nothing. They performed the closing ceremony and then it was like, bye, see ya. And suddenly there was nothing. There was no more investment, no infrastructure left for any of those people to continue training. And Tina has had an inclusive practice for a really long time. So Tina worked quite hard to open up more of her training. I ran this kind of week intensive, actually with Fred and with Tina uh, and another teacher called Lorraine Moynihan, very succinct title called the Paralympic Aerial Legacy Intensive. But it was about trying to keep that spirit alive for those people who wanted to continue training. But it was only a week. So, you know, in some ways I was doing the same thing all over again. I was kind of going, hey, here's a week of really good training. And then bleh, you get nothing again. So kind of trying to keep that momentum going. And people like Tina have done the best job of that. And another woman called Rachel Freeman, who has a company called Everybody Dance, an inclusive practice. People like that are the ones who are really keeping that going. And the rest of us kind of dip our toes in and out of the water. And as I said earlier, that's just not good enough to be inclusive at the time that it suits you and not at the rest of the time. So we really, yeah, we really have to address that. So Vertical Dance Forum was a meeting of seven choreographers, six European, one Canadian, who were all, exactly what it says on the tin, who were all interested in vertical dance. And most of those choreographers had done very little or no work with deaf or disabled practitioners and so we had a week whereby there was a supported space and I brought in artists that I'd worked with before and we just got to play with vertical dance techniques and it was more than enabling the deaf and disabled participants it was about the non-disabled choreographers and giving them the confidence to be able to take some little nugget of that back to their own practice back to their own country to start growing, nurturing. Yeah, it's just an ongoing desire to want to be able to do that, recognising the need that we need to do much more of that. You know, that it's not just about having, you know, making everything speech to text, having BSL interpreters. It has to be so much more than that. Yeah, it takes, takes time to figure out how to be able to include everybody all of the time and not just when it suits you. Is there a fund for this that people can donate to Mm, no, <laughs> not that I know of. <laughs> there should be. There should of, be. Yeah. No, there really should be. There really should be. And th th that was so devastating for so many of those artists that worked so hard towards the Olympics. And, you know, people at that time had a real sense of purpose. There was this real sense of community of everybody, not just the people working on the Paralympics of the whole nation that just went poof <laughs> and evaporated. So, yeah. Very sad. Yeah. I did just think of something that I would like to flag up. Something I'm really passionate about is 
I think we're all really passionate about actually all the people that you've spoken to so far is about uh, creative professional development opportunities for our people. So, you know, I say that, you know, we're, we're all standing on the shoulders of those who went before us. But unless you keep laying those foundations for that next generation, that all starts to fall apart a little bit. So. Uh, one of the things we've been doing for the last few years is running a two-day aerial symposium called Dissecting Aerial. And in the past, that's been an in-person symposium. We've usually had eight speakers and they are people, I'm just thinking about who's spoken in the past, the fabulous Jen Crane, Serenity, Sarah Poole, Anna Prada, Tina Carter. So we've had practitioners speak and then we've borrowed from kind of the dance medicine practitioners as well so then we've also had people present on things like periodization and nutrition and psychology so butting up against your fear and that kind of thing and looking at anatomy and the body's natural fascial aerial slings and all that kind of stuff so kind of a real mix of stuff just to get people thinking and curious and also to come together. It's another opportunity to come together as a community. And last year, Jen Crane said to me, I really don't understand why you're not offering this as a live streamed thing. <laughs> and so this year, thanks to COVID and thanks to Jen's suggestion, we will be offering it as a live stream symposium. So we are hoping that there'll be the practical elements, the kind of in-person element in a venue in Brighton where we'll gather as many people as we can safely, obviously, but that we will also be able to live stream the symposium and have kind of hubs of watching all over the world. So talking to Serenity about whether she might host something and at the same time uh, give a presentation. Uh, talking to Chantal about whether the Irish Aerial Creation Centre can have a hub of watching. So it's a way of in this time when we're so disparate, it's a, it's a way of still wanting to hold out hands to people and connect the community with that curiosity. And so hopefully, fingers crossed, fingers and everything else crossed, we'll be running that on March 20th and 21st. Sounds incredible. And I hope it is a live stream because I would love to be able to do that. And <laughs> then I can. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic which is definitely like that weird little like I don't even know if it's a silver lining it's more like the ability of artists to continually adapt so many people are talking about adapting and pivoting and I'm like that's what you do and then seeing people like you who are taking this really beautiful and important conversation and and symposium you know this practical work and opening it up so that more people can then be a part of it well, I think, yeah, we spend such a long time pulling the speakers together and they're experts. They're people who know their shit <laughs> and everybody should hear them. <laughs> and normally there's just kind of 25 of us geeks in the room with our notebooks. <laughs> Going, oh, that was really interesting. Oh, that, yeah. Wouldn't everyone else, not everyone else, surely not everyone else is interested, but wouldn't a whole lot of other people really love to be in on this and to be able to ask those people those questions? I'm sure there's way more than 25. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's part of, you know, building this aerial community, which is so strong. And part of why we all do it is for the community. Yeah, I concur. <laughs> I personally really want aerial in the Olympics. I know people on both sides of that. Since you mentioned the Paralympics, I am curious on your thoughts and if this is something that would ever go there and, and where you land on that. <laughs> 
I think it comes back to that uh, was something you were saying, Jane, at the beginning, and I'm really interested in that about the festivals being competitive. For me, this is absolutely non-competitive. And I understand, you know, I understand that that's a real drive for some people, you know, that I'm not sure how it is in the States, but in the UK, there is this explosion of pole studios and it's fantastic. All of these people <laughs> just exploring and becoming aware of their bodies and and whilst I love all of that aspect, for me, oh God, this is going to sound really snobby. If it's an art form, it's not about competition. This is just my own prejudice, not really coming from competitive, not at all coming from competitive sport or anything like that. What I love about our art form is that generosity and that openness. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in sports, but I think if you want to get ahead to a certain extent, there has to be an element maybe of stepping over other people that's not something I'm particularly interested in as an art form I think sport I have a huge respect for athletes and their sport and their commitment and everything else about it but I think the sport and there's the arts (laughs) that totally makes sense I think you put it in a way that I'm like oh yeah maybe not it's sort of this feeling that I get and I I always associated it, it with sort of a United States American perspective, but I think that that's actually too limited, is that things are legitimized by winning. And and what I found was actually exactly the opposite, because I have competed a couple of times in different festivals, both national and international, and it made me a less courageous artist because I was so worried about whether or not I would mess it up when I was then under that pressure that I actually made significantly less risky choices that I think didn't serve the work. And it's just a headspace thing. And I know that everybody's different, that that's not other people's experiences, but for me. Yeah. You know, I do think there was a point in that explosion, you know, suddenly everyone was wanting to run an aerial dance festival. And of course, you know, I mean, myself and Fred and Chantal wanted to run an aerial dance festival because we wanted to create this sense of community, but then other people come to the festivals and go, oh, I want a bit of that. And absolutely, why not? Yes, you go ahead, you create your own festival. How fantastic. But there is also something about being respectful. This community has grown exponentially and will continue to. And there's room for everybody, as long as we maintain that generosity and that respect for each other. And it's when that starts to get trodden on, when we start to get competitive, then that's when I start to worry. But it happens so rarely, I think, in this sector, in this industry, that it doesn't usually concern me for very long. Thank you so much. much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, such a lovely conversation. And thank you for sharing. Good to meet you. And I look forward to hearing everybody else. And uh, yeah, Yeah. no problem. All right. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Aerial Evolution. We're looking forward to next time when we will be speaking with Jane Osborne, an actor and circus professional whose work has spanned dance, circus arts, and theater. And we would love to hear from you. If you have questions or comments about this episode, come and find us on Instagram or Facebook at Aerial Evolution Pod. And both of these links will be in the show notes as well. And stay tuned for future episodes with other amazing aerialists releasing every two weeks. Until next time. 